Today's interview contains descriptions of violence and may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Amy Quidding, and I'm from Johannesburg in sunny South Africa across the ocean. I love listening to Compelled because it has truly inspired me to be bold in my faith, particularly with Francine Perry, her story. I so related to her. So I just want to say thank you very much to Paul and to the team for faithfully serving the Lord in this way. Enjoy today's episode. Uncle Bob couldn't see at first the knife come out, but then he saw the blood. Well, he's terrified because the guy's got a knife, right? So he's trying to knock this guy out. Well, in the process, he kills the guy. The guy's heart stops. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to the season five premiere of Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming the lives of Christians around the world. It's been nine months since our last episode, and we are so excited to bring you another 11 episodes this season. Our guest today is Greg Steer, who grew up surrounded by an extended family with explosive tempers and destructive strength. Greg was small and mild-mannered and just didn't fit in with his family of thugs and criminals. In the world's eyes, it may have seemed that saving Greg's family was hopeless, but Greg would discover that there is a power in heaven that can change and transform even an entire family. So lean in and join us in this first episode from season five of Compelled in this unique story from the kingdom of God. You may have heard of the ministry that Greg leads called Dare to Share. They've been focused on evangelism to youth and teens since 1991, with a heavy emphasis on teaching students how to share their faith with their peers. And crazy thing, after I scheduled this interview with Greg, I realized that I heard him speak 15 years ago when I attended an Iwana youth conference as a teenager. And Greg was every bit as engaging then as he is now. To get things started, I asked Greg if his life was a movie— How would it begin? Well, this movie would begin in North Denver because that's where I was actually raised. Born and raised in North Denver, which at the time was the highest crime rate area of our city. You know, every city's got a city. You know, Lincoln, Nebraska's got a city within the city. You know, Omaha, uh, New York, you know, Chicago, you got South Chicago, Austin, Texas. Every city's got a city within the city where there's a lot of crime. And I was raised in that high crime rate area, high poverty area. And my family had something to do with that crime rate. I say when I preach, I don't come from a typical religious, church-going, pew-sitting, hymn-singing family. I come from a family filled with bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, beer-drinking thugs. And that's just the women, sadly. But my family was uh, urban tough. Uh, Three of my uncles were competitive bodybuilders. The fourth one was a bouncer at the toughest bar in Denver. The fifth one was a Golden Gloves boxer, judo champion, and war hero. When I say war hero, I'm not exaggerating. You don't argue with a man who's got five bullet wounds and a five-inch scar from a bayonet that he not only survived the bayonet attack, he killed the guy that gave it to him. So my, my family was tough, tough. And that was my family. My family was very violent, filled with rage, 
My mom was the only girl in the group of these five street fighting brothers, and they were all afraid of her. So my mom was like the woman at the well with a baseball bat. She was like a violent version of the woman at the well. My mom had been married several times. She met my biological father at a party, and they partied, and she got pregnant, and he found out and he got transferred. He was in the army. Hmm. And so he gets transferred across the country, wants nothing to do with my mom. Well, my mom did not want to stand before her strict Baptist parents and give an account for another bad decision. So she got in the car and she drove, first of all, from Denver to Atlanta, where my biological father was stationed, to see if she can talk him into, you know, making this baby legitimate, and she can't find him. So she drives from Atlanta to Boston to stay with my Uncle Tommy and my Aunt Carol. My Uncle Tommy was a bodybuilder. He was the one non-violent, I would say, of, of our family. He fought, but he didn't, he didn't like to. But he was a believer, actually. He was, him and his wife, Carol, were believers. She stayed with them, and she told her parents, my grandparents, oh, I'm just, I'm gonna stay with my brother Tommy and, and Carol for a while. Well, it was so she could have an illegal abortion. This is before Roe v. Wade, so she was gonna abort me. Yeah. That was the plan, because my grandparents had no idea she was pregnant. Well, Tommy and Carol started talking her out of it, and it took them several months, and they finally talked her out of it. Wow. And my mom came back to Denver and had me, and I wondered why for years when she looked at me, she would just burst out in tears. Oh, she wow. would just start crying. And at night, she would often say to me, I'm a bum. I'm a bum. You don't know the kind of bum I am. And my mom would cry. And our family doesn't cry. They weep, you know. We don't talk loudly. We yell. So she would weep. I'm such a bum. I'm such a bum. You don't know the things I've done. So I wondered why for years she would do that. And my grandmother sent me down. She said, I want to tell you the full story. And she told me everything. She told me my mom almost aborted me, that my mom felt extreme guilt, that my mom never thought God could forgive her. And that's why she was so mad. That's why she was filled with rage. So that it was a shame. What I witnessed as a kid was a shame-fueled rage. And I think it came from my mom's innermost being that she just felt she was such a sinner. She'd been used and abused by men, and she was angry at everyone, and especially those who would take advantage of her. Yeah. So, yeah, she had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of pain in her heart. Man. She was a. I don't want to paint her as a violent beast, though. She was. She was a great mom. She loved me and my big brother. She loved us. She was so terrified of being a bad mom, because she just she didn't know what to do and how to how to raise two boys but she did her best i love my mom and that pretty much set the tone for greg's upbringing they didn't have much money which meant that they lived on the wrong side of town where housing was cheaper and with that came a whole lifestyle characterized by violence and brutality my most vivid memory my earliest memory of violence was my mom so here she is this lady that's raised in this family with five street fighters, you know, and she knows how to fight. She's a strong lady, a tough lady. 
When I was five years old, I was playing on the front porch with a plastic bat. I remember this like it was yesterday. And a car pulls up, a brand new car. And it's shiny and it's, you know, nice. And it did not fit into our neighborhood. And I was a little bit freaked out because my mom would always warn me about the weirdos, you know, be careful. She was just terrified for me because all my family was terrified for me because I wasn't a tough kid. Hmm. You know, I carried a dictionary with me. I was a bookish kind of kid. And I looked and I remembered this guy. This guy was, his name was Paul. He was a guy that my mom had married months earlier who had left us. We had no idea where he was. One day he was just up and gone. Well, I found out later he came for the tax return check. Wow. Well, I yell inside, mommy, mommy, you know, one of my daddies is here or something. And she looks out the window, my mom, she was doing the dishes, smoking a cigarette, cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And she goes, where's the bat? It's Paul, where's the baseball bat? And I had a little plastic yellow bat. I go, here, mommy, she didn't want the, the plastic bat. She wanted the Louisville slugger, right? She reaches behind the door, runs out, cigarette still hanging out of her mouth, cursing at him the whole way. He's still sitting in the car. He should have just drove off. She took out the front windshield, just shattered it, took out his headlights, knocked off his side, you know, rear view mirror off the, off the side, then starts doing body damage. And in between every hit, she's taunting him, get out of the car, get out of the car. Well, he makes a tactical mistake in getting out of the car, which is not a good idea. Yeah. And she took the edge of that bat, the end of that bat, and just shoved it like in his nose, and it blew up like a blood grenade. I'll never forget. It's so. I mean, I joke about it now, but it traumatized me as a kid. It was, you know, like you say, it was gratuitous and it was violent. And I was five, you know, and she beat him bloody. Eventually, he gets in the car and drives off, and we never see him again. And I remember her walking back up from that car to the door. Three things I remember thinking to myself, number one, I will never disobey my mommy again, right? I mean, wow. do not disobey your mom is what I was telling myself. Secondly, the cigarette stayed in her mouth the whole time, which I was super impressed by actually. And thirdly, why is my mom so filled with rage? Mm. There was something inside her that was a ticking time bomb. And whenever that bomb exploded, there was violence. And so I was even then wondering, what is the deal with not just my ma, but my whole family? Mm. Where did this rage come from? It was scary for me. I was, I was afraid. I love my mom and she loved me. She loved my big brother. But there was a violent rage inside that I just did not understand, not just her, but the whole family. So I think of my uncles and I think of the extreme violence that my uncles participated in. They were dangerous, dangerous men. Uh, my toughest uncle, my uncle Jack, uh, looked like the Wolverine, a beefed up version of the Wolverine. He'd been in and out of jail his whole life, once for choking two cops unconscious at the same time who were trying to arrest him on assault charges. So he was a really, really tough guy. It was just normal. This, the violence was normal for my family. I think my uncle Richard, who was a bodybuilder, uh, the uncles are all sitting around the table. A gang drives down the, the side alley that was next to my grandparents' house, taunting my family as they drive slowly by. Well, they're all up out of the table. Uncle Richard, the first one out, runs toward this car as it's just peeling out of the 
alleyway onto the main street, jumps through the open window while the car is driving and starts beating these guys, kicking them, beating them, fighting them. Well, they drive about a half block away and wreck the car because he's, you know, taking them out. Meanwhile, all my uncles rushing down the street. My mom comes out in nothing but a bathrobe and a baseball bat. She joins in the fight while they beat these guys senseless. Cops come. Well, these guys were all wanted. So my family didn't get in trouble for that. But just one, I just heard so much violence, so many violent stories, saw so much violence. Greg already mentioned that he didn't fit in. He didn't especially enjoy violence. He wasn't strong or tough. He was just a kid. But his uncles were some of the only male figures in his life. And even though they could be incredibly angry and destructive, in this weird and twisted way, Greg looked up to them. He thought of them as protectors and real-life superheroes. So even though he was scared of them, he also wanted their approval, which made one event in his life especially painful. I'm six years old. I'm at my grandparents' house. It's Christmas morning, and the whole family's there, uncles, aunts, cousins. And I'm just standing in the corner, opening presents, right? Just quietly, because that's what I was. I was just a quiet kid in the corner that everybody whispered about because they were nervous about me. We get finished. We're all about to go have lunch. And again, my family is a huge family. My Uncle Dave, who was a war hero, he was the Golden Gloves boxing champion for his weight division. He was a judo champion, not a bodybuilder, but tough as nails. He goes, I got one more present for little Greg. I'm six years old and I'm getting noticed for the first time in a positive way. And I walk across the room with six-year-old swagger, like, wow, I'm being noticed. And he gives me this present and I open it up in front of everyone. And it's a girl's doll. And I thought it was a mistake. And I look at my Uncle Dave, I go, it's a girl's doll. He goes, yeah, I figured you don't have a dad, so you like to play with dolls like a little girl. And I got so mad. And I shoved that doll in the stomach. I go, I ain't no girl. And I walked back to my place. And all my uncles were like, you see the temper on him? Maybe he's one of us after all. <laughs> well, it sent me on a tailspin. Like, who am I? How did I get stuck in this crazy family? Why am I here? Is there a God? What's my purpose in life? And thoughts that you don't think a six-year-old ever thinks? I thought. Really? That's why I never underestimate the thoughts of kids. I do not, because I remember as clear as day saying there's got to be a reason I'm here. I do not understand. So I used to take my little red Bible that my grandparents had given to me at Bethany Baptist Church through my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Muirhead, and a flashlight. I was not yet a Christian. I did not understand the gospel. But I used to hide underneath the kitchen sink with that flashlight and that Bible and read. And even though I barely could understand the words, because it's King James, right? And I'm six. Wow. I knew the answers were there. And I read and I read and I read. I read underneath the kitchen sink for two reasons. To get away from the violence, to get away from the loudness of my family, and to get alone to try to figure out my purpose, God, life, death. Who am I? Why am I here? From that moment on, I was really serious about finding God, hmm. which means he was really serious about finding me. 
Now, Greg was no stranger to God or the Bible, which is why he even thought to look for answers in the Little Red Bible he received in Sunday school. And for the next two years, Greg kept looking for those answers. His grandparents were faithful members of their local church, and years ago, they had dutifully taken his mom and uncles to church every Sunday as they were growing up, and had tried to instill in them a love for God. But apparently, that didn't make much of an impression. And so, my uncles had rebelled against God, you know, as as teenagers. My mom rebelled against God. So they were living, even though raised in a church, they were living this wild, crazy, violent existence. And my grandparents, I think, felt guilty about that. So they took me and my brother to church. I think they were trying to make up for maybe they felt bad about the kind of parents they were or too strict or whatever, but they were trying to make it up with Doug and I, my, my big brother and myself. My Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Muirhead, used to give the gospel all the time, but then she would say, if you want to get to heaven, ask Jesus into your heart. And that really confused me as a kid. Like, okay, Jesus, come in my heart. Are you there? Knock three times on my pancreas if you made it. You know, and I thought if I cough too hard, there goes Jesus. If I get a heart transplant, I'm going straight to hell. I didn't understand what that meant. So I didn't understand the gospel. Then they used to say, if you want to get to heaven— you got to confess your sins to God. Well, I I used to confess all my sins. Like I'd confess every single one because I thought if I missed one, I'm going to hell. And finally, when I got everything confessed, I would drop an F-bomb in my mind and I would confess that. And then I would drop another F-bomb in my mind and I would confess that. And I thought, man, if I die between the cursing and the confession, I'm going straight to hell. So I was just a neurotic, terrified kid. Yeah. And one day at church on June 23rd, 1974... Pastor Claude Pettit, in the main church service, gave an invitation. So I walked forward, and Pastor Pettit, in front of the whole audience, goes, Now, before you get baptized, you have to be a Christian. And that means you believe that Jesus died for all your sins on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and you're trusting in him, not your good deeds. You're trusting in Jesus to forgive you for all your sins. Have you done that? Well, that was the first time the gospel was clear to me. Really? And I go, yes. He didn't know he just led me to Christ. And I told my grandmother in the car, she took that little red Bible I'd been studying with a flashlight and wrote these words in it. On June 23rd, 1974, Greg Steer received Jesus Christ as his Savior. And I still have that little red Bible today. That's profound. Yeah. It's simple. It's profound because it's simple. The simple gospel changes everything. And then it began, to, it began to change my family. Now, the timing, you know, some before this, some after this, but one by one by one, my family began to be transformed by this simple gospel message. It really is a simple message. In the book of Acts, when the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul how to be saved, Paul doesn't start reciting the entire Bible from Genesis. He simply responds with, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a very simple message, simple enough for a child like Greg to understand, but profound enough to transform even the most violent, hardened heart, which you'll hear about right after the break. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. 
their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of the Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Welcome back to Compelled. We've been listening to Greg Steer describe his life growing up on the wrong side of Denver with a family that was given to extreme bouts of rage and anger. Greg had always stood out from the rest of his family like a sore thumb. They were all brash, loud, and violent. Greg was none of those. And now that Greg had just placed his faith in Jesus Christ as an eight-year-old, he was going to stand out even more. But as God would have it, he wasn't the only one. Because before Greg found Jesus, the unthinkable had happened to someone else in his family. One day a preacher who was from the Deep South, he was a hillbilly preacher with a deep Southern drawl, whose nickname was Yankee, Okay, planted a church in the suburbs of Denver. A guy that was going to his church was named Bob Daly. Now, Bob Daly knew my family, knew my uncles, was raised in North Denver. My family name is Matthias, so he knew the Matthias brothers, good friends with them, but not quite bold enough to share the gospel with them. So he dared Yankee to go and share the gospel with Jack, Uncle Jack. Uncle Jack is the one who looks like the Wolverine. Big lamb chop sideburns, talks like this, in and out of jail, tattoos everywhere. The one that went to jail for choking two cops unconscious at the same time. Toughest guy I've ever met to this day. Yankee goes up on a Saturday morning, knocks on the, on the door. Jack comes to the door, no shirt on, two beer cans, one for drinking beer, one for spit and chew. 
Didn't want to get those mixed up. The biggest German Shepherd you'd ever seen named Lobo. I remember Lobo, huge German Shepherd. More like a small horse, right? Barking, Anna Lean took, took Lobo back, locked him in the, in the back room. Jack goes, what do you want? Yankee said, I'm here on a dare from Bob Daly to tell you about Jesus. And he goes, well, I don't know Jesus, I know Bob. And at the same time, Yankee remembered that Jack's two girls, my cousins, Tammy and Jackie, were, were a part of the youth group that Yankee led. And he goes, by the way, your, your kids, your two girls go to the youth group I lead and they're the best girls, so sweet, so kind. Well, that kind of got to the heart of my Uncle Jack. He goes, all right, I'll give you a few minutes here. Come on in. He set it down at the table, and Yankee explains the gospel, the simple gospel, in a way that my Uncle Jack understood it. See, my Uncle Jack, being raised in this Baptist church, all he heard was the rules. That's all that, you know, he just filtered rules. I got to do, I got to stop, I got to try, I got to turn, I got to do this, I got to turn over a new leaf. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell. I might as well have fun. That's how most of my family reacted. Yeah. For the first time, he hears that God created us to be with him, that God loves us, but that our sins separate us from God. And God's a holy God. He loves us, but he hates our sin. And those sins could never be removed by our good deeds. It's like putting white frosting on a burnt cake. So God sent his son, Jesus to live the perfect life we could never live and die the death on the cross that we deserve. So Jesus, fully God and fully man, died in our place for our sin, rose from the dead, and he offers eternal life to all those who simply trust in him. And Yankee said, does that make sense? And Jack said, well, yeah, that was a sinner's prayer was, yeah. He trusted in Jesus. Right there on the spot. Right there on the spot. My Aunt Earlene trusted in Christ right there on the spot best news they'd ever heard in their lives and Jack began to tell everyone I mean everyone he brought 250 people out to Yankees Church in one month that's no exaggeration most of them were street fighters bodybuilders tough guys gang members and Jack didn't just bring him out he was sharing Christ the whole way with these guys the next day after he trusted Christ, he went back to the meatpacking place where he worked. And there was a guy, another guy, that he wanted to come to Jesus with the simple gospel. This guy was a bodybuilder, an Italian bodybuilder, nicknamed Thumper. So he, he shares the gospel with Thumper. Thumper had never heard this good news. Thumper says, you gotta tell my whole family this. It was an Italian Catholic family. So my Uncle Jack went over every night for two weeks armed with a simple gospel and shared the gospel the best way that a new believer can, but he kept taking him back to the cross. One by one by one, every single one of those family members put their faith in Christ. And I don't want to paint a picture like when Jack came to Christ, everything was, you know, perfect and roses. I mean, there was times like right after he came to Christ where it was, if you didn't take Jesus, he may give you Moses right upside your head. Like he's sharing the gospel in a sauna with another bodybuilder. And the weird thing is when you're in the sauna, you don't have clothes on, you're buck naked, sharing Christ with another buck naked bodybuilder. Well, there's another guy who overhearing who starts interrupting. My Uncle Jack doesn't know the rules about loving your enemies yet. So he turns to this guy, he goes, hey, I'm trying to tell this guy about the love of Jesus. Why don't you shut your stinking mouth? 
and he continues to share the gospel. The guy interrupts again. He goes, you interrupt me one more time, I'm taking you out. <laughs> he continues to share the gospel. The guy interrupts again. Boom, Jack nails this guy. The guy falls to the ground, looks up and goes, Jesus didn't go around hitting people like that. He goes, well, I ain't Jesus. I'm Jack. Shut up. Oh, man. You know, it's interesting because years later, Michael Jack's 50th wedding anniversary, uh, we had all the family, all the friends, everybody's out. And I have a video. I want Uncle Jack to tell me the story about the sauna. And he goes, well, the guy led to Christ is here. And he calls him over. And I go, tell me the story about the son. He goes, yeah, when your Uncle Jack beat the blank out of that guy when he was telling me about Jesus, it was awesome. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, okay, these, these are not made up stories. These are real, true stories. So my uncle, my uncle Jack came to Christ and got set ablaze with the gospel. But after God had radically changed Greg's Uncle Jack, he wasn't going to stop now. Greg had another uncle named Bob. Uncle Bob was a pipe fitter and during the day would routinely lift incredibly heavy metal pipes for his job all day long. But during the evenings, he would start his night job as a bouncer. Uncle Bob was a bouncer at the toughest bar in Denver, the Silver Dollar Bar and Grill. One night, he was with his buddy Doug Johnson and the bar owner, and they were sitting out in the parking lot, and they were drunk, and some guy who was filled with drugs jumped on the car and Doug Johnson got out of the car and started fighting him well, the guy had a knife it was just turning dark and my uncle Bob couldn't see at first the knife come out but then he saw the blood and they rushed over the guy stood up after stabbing Doug Johnson several times stabbed the bar owner in the stomach and then went after my uncle Bob my uncle Bob swept his legs to kind of create some distance and they ran back to try to draw him away from his friends who were bleeding on the, in the parking lot and the guy ran and hid behind the bar. Well, my Uncle Bob ran around the backside of the bar, and he's a big man. He wasn't a bodybuilder. He was more like an offensive lineman, huge man. And the guy was hiding on the backside of the bar. My Uncle Bob runs up behind him full speed, grabs his head with his giant hands, and shoves this guy's head into the brick wall and begins to beat him. Well, he's terrified because the guy's got a knife, right? So he's trying to knock this guy out. Well, in the process, he kills the guy. The guy's heart stops. Oh, wow. And when the cops pull up to arrest my Uncle Bob, you know, he's beating a corpse, and he's covered in blood. And the cops try to arrest him. Well, he takes the cops out at first, and finally several took him down, put him in the back of the squad car. So he had actually trusted in Jesus when he was eight years old, but had rebelled. But it was in the back of that squad car when he saw the EMTs pull up rush out and start pumping this guy's chest, he realized, I killed this guy. And the cop told him, you're going to jail, at least for manslaughter. You're going to be locked up for a long time. In the back of the squad car, he called out to God, God, if they resuscitate him, and even if they don't, I'm back. I'll serve you with all my heart. And he just wept, wept. Went to jail that night. Found out the next day, they resuscitated the guy. They found the knife on the guy that he had stabbed his two friends with. And that guy was wanted. He had drugs in his system, all sorts of stuff. So they released my Uncle Bob. No charges. Bob went to Yankees Church, got challenged to share the gospel, got a heart for children. Yankee had a bus ministry back in the 60s and 70s. A big thing was get school buses, go neighborhood to neighborhood, invite children 
to go on the bus on Sunday morning uh, to church. It was a big, big deal. Now, today, it's almost in parts of America, that's unthinkable, you know, sending your kids on a school bus with random stranger to go to church. But back then, it was normal. Well, Bob, his his goal was, I want to be the first one at Yankees Church to have over 100 kids on my bus route. So he got him, man. He went to trailer courts. He went to apartment complexes. And he would just invite these kids to come to church and tell the parents about his radical transformation. And he got over 100 kids. It was first one at Yankees Church to get over 100 kids on every Sunday morning to go on a bus with him to, to Sunday school. A year later, he went to Florida Bible College, graduated from there. To this day, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, he lives in St. Louis. Imagine that. Uncle Bob, a man filled with enough rage and anger to kill someone with his bare hands, completely transformed by the message of Jesus. And believe it or not, God was still at work in Greg's family. So my brother, Doug, seven years older than me, had a lot of struggles. Today, we would call them learning disabilities. But back in the 70s, they didn't have a tag for that. Hmm. Kids were ruthless to him, mean to him. He also had epilepsy, so he could have a grand mal seizure any time of the day or night. Oh, man. And so he, you know, he was a mess. And he was not a wimp. He would fight back in school. So he got expelled a couple times, started getting in trouble with the law. His life was in a downward spiral. And one day he snapped. And our little apartment complex, he went to the next door neighbor's house and completely vandalized the apartment. Cops took him away. They gave him a choice, juvenile or six months in the mental institute. He chose the mental institute. And again, this is back in the 70s. This is back when, like, the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, this is not, like, modern psychiatric treatment. This is pretty antiquated stuff, back with straight jackets, and they would give you electroshock therapy and different things like that. Well, my, my brother saw, you know, people with real mental problems and he began to realize, okay, I got problems. And for six months, he had nothing but his Bible and he read it and he got it. The simple gospel, the mission. And he came out on fire, on fire for Christ. He used to share the gospel with anybody and everybody. One day he bought a bicycle, pulled up to a car on the street at a stoplight. Thanks, those guys need Jesus. At a red light, he knocks on the window. They roll down the window. He starts sharing the gospel with them. They're looking at him like he's some kind of freak. The light turns green. They said, we got to go. And he wasn't done. He goes, well, go. And he holds onto the handle. The car takes off up to like 45 miles an hour. Doug's bouncing himself because he wants to get the full, simple gospel in, right? And he says, I hope you believe. And he peels off to safety. Thank the Lord he didn't wreck. Later on, he tells me the story. I go, Doug, you're an idiot. You could have got sucked into those tires, run over and killed. He said, it'd be worth it. I want those guys to know Jesus. So Doug would share the gospel night and day with everyone. And he was so passionate about it. He finally graduated with his GED, was 19 or 20 years old when he was at a Perkins restaurant saw a server there that he thought was cute, but would not date an unbeliever. So right there, he led her to Christ and asked her out. And she said, yes. And they went out. And he said, I think this is going great. We should marry. And she thought he was joking. She goes, okay. He wasn't joking. Six months later, they got married. They ended up moving to Ankeny, Iowa, where for 30 years, Doug was a custodian at a public school. 
and he would just share Christ. He would sing Christian songs, sing hymns, whistle, share the gospel. And administrators would tell him, Doug, evangelism is prohibited. But he thought the word prohibited meant encouraged. He goes, okay, great. <laughs> Once a week or so, he'll call me up and oftentimes tell me the latest person that he's led to Christ. And I think there will be thousands who stand and applaud Doug Steer at the judgment seat of Christ because he has every reason to keep his mouth shut about the gospel, but he refuses to be excused. Now, if you're keeping count, that's the fourth person in Greg's family to follow Christ. Greg, Uncle Jack, Uncle Bob, and now his brother, Doug. But there were still other members of their family who didn't know Jesus, and Greg desperately wanted to see that change. So I get saved. I go to Yankees Church when I'm probably middle school. Start getting trained to share my faith because Yankee, he believed in youth ministry. He believed in teenagers. We had a, he had a youth group of 800 teenagers. He had a church of 300 adults. Whoa. He believed the fastest way to reach a city for Christ was through the young, which he was right. That's why I do dare to share today. Teens come to Christ quicker. They spread the gospel faster and farther than adults. So I get involved with this youth group. I get trained to share the gospel. And the first person on my heart is my ma, because I want her to know Jesus. And I know she doesn't know. I know she thinks she's too sinful. So I start sharing the gospel with her when I'm like 12, 13, 14, 15. She used to always say, you don't know the things I've done wrong. Well, I knew everything because my grandma had told me everything. I never told my mom that I knew everything. Hmm. But I knew. I knew she almost supported me. I knew she had been married several times. I knew I was a result of a party. I knew all this stuff. I knew all the garbage. Saw a lot of it myself, but I knew the rest. So when I was 15, I was like, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to, you got to kind of come at my family straight up, straight on. So I go in the kitchen. She's sitting down smoking a cigarette. I go, ma, you need to listen to every word coming out of my mouth right now. I need, I need, I need to talk to you about something. And I didn't talk to my mom like that because she was a dangerous woman. You'd put the baseball bat away, yeah, right? Yeah, put the like baseball bat away, hit it. So I just lay the gospel out, the simple gospel. She's smoking. She looks at me and she goes, you mean to tell me all I got to do is believe, trust in Jesus, and he forgives me for all my sins? Or yeah. She goes, what about the big sins? I go, they're all big to him. He's a holy God. One little white lie is big to him. Every sin is big. Every One little sin gets you kicked in the hell. They're all big to God. She took a drag. She goes, you mean if I just trust in him, he forgives me like that? Yeah, if you believe he died for your sins and you trust in him alone, he will forgive you and he will give you eternal life and give you a new identity. She took a drag. She looked off in the distance. She looked over at me. She said, I'm in. When my family said they're in, they're in. She put her faith in Christ. So I had the privilege of leading my mom to Christ and then discipling my own ma. Well, it was so great to see joy in her eyes, hope in her eyes for the very first time. And she was rough and she was raw, but she was in. It was one of the best days of my life when mm. I got to lead my mom to Christ. Greg's family, which had been so full of anger and violence, was now completely different. 
one by one, each of Greg's family members was coming to Christ. Even Uncle Dave, the Vietnam War veteran who had given Greg the doll all those Christmases ago. True, they were all still rough around the edges, but their hearts were turning in a completely different direction. All of them had found Christ, except for one, which you'll hear about right after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Welcome back to Compelled. 
We were just listening to Greg share about how one unlikely family member after another was submitting their life to Christ. All of them, except one. So beside my ma, there was one other holdout to Christ. It was my Uncle Richard. So my Uncle Richard was a tough uncle. He was the one that jumped through the window, the, the gang members of the car they were driving and the car wrecked. and Tough, tough guy. But he left soon after he graduated from high school, went to Scottsdale, Arizona, and made his fortune. And he was the only one in the family that actually had some sort of wealth. Well, in the meantime, while he's gone, all my uncles come to Christ. There's this radical transformation in my family. My grandfather, when I was 15 years old, had a massive heart attack. I went to Yankees Little Christian School. He called me to the office, sat me down and said, your, your grandfather's going to die. Hmm. My mom picked me up, took me to St. Anthony's North. My grandfather in the in the ICU, you know, he was brain dead. Mm. His eyes fluttering in the back of his head. We knew it was going to be a matter of time. We didn't know how long. Well, in the meantime, my uncles all come in. My aunts, my Uncle Richard flies in from Arizona. They grieve together. But then my uncles start trying to share Christ with Richard because he's the one holdout. And he's like, he knows how to fight. He knows how to dodge, you know, f fists. And he knows how to dodge spiritual questions. And he's just shucking and jiving. Nobody can nail him down. He doesn't want to talk about it. Finally, you guys, guys, you guys turn into a bunch of religious freaks. Don't push this stuff on me. Well, he goes back to Arizona and he's got to get back to work. I see all my uncles talking in the waiting room of St. Anthony's North. And I keep looking over at me. And I'm 15 years old. I'm just in the corner doing my math homework, right? Then I call my grandma into the circle and she looks over and kind of gives a half smile. I'm like, what in the world is happening right now? Then they all come over. To you? To me. Now, I'd been going to this little Christian school. I was thriving in the Christian school. I kind of found I had a personality. You know, I could joke around, make kids laugh. I found that, hey, they had this competitions at a little fundamentalist Christian school. One of them is a preaching competition. So I entered in the preaching competitions, and I won some awards, little 10-minute sermons before judges at this little fundamentalist Christian schools, you know, group. And uh, all my uncles go, we got to talk to you about something. I go, yeah? They said, well, dad's going to die, your grandpa. And when he dies at the funeral, we want you to do the sermon. And I'm like, uh, well, I'm 15. They're like, well, that's fine. You're going to do the sermon. We're not asking you. We're telling you. I go, why don't you get a professional to do this? They're like, we know you can preach. And we know you'll give the gospel clear. And we want the gospel given clear because Richard's going to be there. Mm. And we don't want to, we don't want to, Take a chance on anybody else. We know you'll give it clear. My Uncle Dave, the one who gave me the doll, goes, well, you chicken? I go, I ain't chicken. I'll do it. So I remember that day, my Uncle Richard flew back in. There was 500 people at my grandfather's funeral. Oh, wow. And it was an open casket, so it was very emotional. I go out with the officiating pastor. He kind of takes care of the ceremonial parts, and it is time for the sermon. I'm 15. I'd never preached a 30-minute sermon, but I was ready. And I was prayed up. I preached this sermon. 
And it wasn't a preaching competition for a little Christian school. It was a sermon. I was 15. And I was terrified, but I was electrified. I could sense the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the very end of my sermon, I had everybody bow their heads and close their eyes. And everybody bowed their head and closed their eyes except for one person, my Uncle Richard. He had his arms folded, kind of smirk on his face, shaking his head back and forth like, you ain't getting me, boy. I gave the invitation, invited those who were putting their faith in Christ to raise their hands. Hands went up everywhere except for Uncle Richard's. I knew a couple things in that moment. It was going to take a while to reach Uncle Richard. The other thing I knew when that sermon was over, I had sensed my calling. Hmm. This is what I'm called to do. So it's almost like going back to Uncle Dave's gift of the doll. That whole unwrapping was an unwrapping. Uh, first, it was an insult to me, but it became an unwrapping of my identity. Who am I? And I felt for the first time, all right, I know my heavenly father and I know my earthly purpose. I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. My uncles desperately tried to reach Uncle Richard in the time he was there. And he, he just kept shutting him down. So he got on a plane, flew back to Arizona. I wrote him a letter that laid the gospel out. You heard me preach the gospel, Uncle Richard. I want you to know Jesus, Grandpa is with Jesus. We want you to be with us someday. And just the best that I could as a 15-year-old kid, sent it to him, called him the next week, said, Uncle Richard, did you get my letter? He goes, yeah, how's your ma? Shut me down. We kept praying. We kept seeking to reach Uncle Richard. He kept shutting us down. 12 years later, he's coming back into town. He's coming back for a funeral, his own, basically. He had stage four cancer. Oh, man. Once a bodybuilder himself, title winning. He was emaciated because of the chemo and the cancer. My uncles are desperate now. They're just begging him. He's still shutting them down. They finally talk him into going to a church to hear their little nephew preach. Me, I was a pastor at the time. I was leading Dare to Share on the side. I was pastoring Grace Church with my buddy Rick Long. I'll never forget the day they come in. My uncles come in, cousins, aunts, take up the back two pews in this church. Looks like we were being invaded by a biker gang. You know, they come in, they sit down. I preached a sermon. And at the end of every sermon, I always gave the gospel, the simple gospel. Gave it. Everybody bowed their heads and closed their eyes. This time, Uncle Richard bowed his head, closed his eyes. Everybody's heads bowed, eyes closed, including my uncles. I said, if that makes sense, and if you're trusting in Jesus for the very first time, that clicks. I want you to raise your hand. Boom, Uncle Richard raises his hand. Boom, all my elder uncles start weeping because they're peeking through their fingers down the row. He put his faith in Christ. Three months later, he died, but in that three-month period, he led more people to Christ than the average Christian will even witness to their entire life. So the power of the gospel swept through my family like a tsunami. Every world religion is turn, try, cry. You gotta turn from all your sin. You gotta try really hard. You have to be sincere. You have to shed some tears. You have to go all in. Every world religion has got a list, has got a ladder. It's got a turn, try, cry list. Only Christianity is when you come with all your sins, totally unable to save yourself. Mm. And you put your faith in someone else. 
who is the only one qualified to pay for our sins, Jesus Christ. It's not cheap, but it is free. It's not cheap because we're purchased by the blood of Christ. But it's free to us through simple faith. Yeah. And I tell people, if the gospel you preach doesn't sound too good to be true, it's not good and it's not true. That's what shocked and rocked my family, the simple message of the gospel. Not saying a prayer, genuine faith in Christ saves us. It's a process too. Sanctification is a process. I saw that with my family. It wasn't instantly like everything's new and all things are becoming new. All things are being transformed. Yeah. You know, and watching that sanctification process take place in my family was a thing of beauty. It was messy and it was brilliant. Think about that. God was taking each broken life in Greg's family and turning it into a beautiful, redemptive story in his time and for his glory. Of course, there was Greg who gave his life to Jesus as a young boy after two years of restless searching. And there was Uncle Jack, the one who looked like the Wolverine and displayed the temper of Moses in the sauna while witnessing. Then Uncle Bob, the bar bouncer who thought he had killed a man, but after giving his life to Christ, began driving a bus, picking up neighborhood children for Sunday school every week. And Greg's brother, Doug, who was literally risking his life and limb to tell others the good news. I hope that each of us are encouraged to exhibit that same fire and passion in sharing the hope of the gospel with others, and to remember that God is still changing lives. To learn more about Greg and his ministry, visit daretoshare.org or gregsteer.org. And I would highly encourage you to read his book, Unlikely Fighter, which shares so many more stories from Greg's life than what we could possibly cover in this interview. And lucky for you, we're giving away two autographed copies of Greg's book this week. Simply go to our website, compelledpodcast.com, find this episode and enter the drawing. And on that page, we'll also include links to the websites I just mentioned. And again, you'll find all of that at compelledpodcast.com. If this is your first time tuning in to Compelled, then you are in for a treat because we actually have another 10 episodes in the queue that we'll be releasing during this season. We're so glad that you've joined us and we encourage you to share this episode with a friend who needs to hear it. Maybe they've struggled with anger or a loved one has, or maybe they're worried that their family is too far gone. Listen up, if God can change Greg's family, then he can change any family. But if you've listened to Compelled for a long time, then you know that we normally take a pretty long break in between seasons, sometimes up to a year. And that's mainly due to financial reasons. We simply don't have the resources to create episodes year round. But we are close, so close to being able to do that. You'll notice that we're playing ads which help cover some of those expenses, but not all of them. The only way we've been able to share these stories is through the generous support of faithful listeners just like you. Obviously, it's all God's money in the first place, so we're not too terribly worried about it. But if he wants the show to continue, then it will and at the pace that he wants. And maybe he's calling you to support the work that we're doing. The biggest way that you could help us out financially is by becoming a monthly Patreon supporter. For just a few bucks a month, you'll get access to all of our episodes one week early and all of our behind the scenes recordings with our guests, which sometimes includes hours of extra content with each guest. For example, Greg shares the incredible story of being contacted out of the blue by his other family. 
his biological father's family who had never met. And the story about that reunion is incredible. And Greg has tons of other great stories that he shared during our original interview, but that we just didn't have enough time to share them in this episode. But you'll get access to all of those extra stories from all of our other guests when you become a monthly supporter. But most importantly, you're helping us share these stories with other listeners who need to hear what God is doing, that He is real, He is active, and that He is working in His people today. You can support our work today by visiting compelledpodcast.com and clicking Donate. This episode was edited by Will Jackson and Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to Compelled listener Trent Williams for providing Greg and me with a recording space. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Deepa Sukumar, a Hindu medical student who was at the end of her rope and ready to end her life when God knocked on the door of her heart. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. So one day I was just like, I'm done. I think I was feeling hopeless. And so I was on call in my hospital. I was just lying down and I said, if there's any force in heaven, do something about my life. If not, I'm just going to just end it. And it was almost like God was like, here she's calling. Let's go. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.